You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Good evening, church. Um, Go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 3, and uh, verses 1 through 6 will be our text this evening. As many of you know, uh, we've been going through a series of the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, and we're near the end of the series, and as uh, we go through it, we come to the letter to the church in Sardis. And um, before I kind of, well, that's weird. (laughs) Yeah, we'll see how that works. Um, (laughs) Before we actually jump into this text, I actually um, had a, a notable question that I wanted to ask you guys. A a theologian by the name of Michael Horton, he's an apologist, theologian, he has a book called Christless Christianity, and he offers us uh, a very thought-provoking question. He asks us, I might just keep it there, that'll work, that's fine, but we'll just run with it. (laughs) Oh, man. All right, let's let's get back to this. Um, Michael Horton asks us a very thought-provoking question, all right? He asks us, What would things look like if Satan actually took over a city? Okay. The first things that come to mind are probably chaos and mayhem on a massive scale. Uh, Widespread violence, deviant sexual behavior, pornography everywhere. You'd You'd think that you'd see churches closed down, bars and clubs packed full, and believers imprisoned. Now, over a half a century ago, Donald Barnhouse, he's a pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He has a CBS radio audience, and he actually had a different picture for us of what he thought that would look like. He said that actually all of the bars and pool halls would be closed. Pornography would be banished. That there would be pristine streets and sidewalks that occupied many people with polite hellos as you walked by. That there would be no swearing and that kids would answer, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. Churches would be packed full on Sundays where Christ was not preached. Where Christ was not preached. So the letter to the church in Sardis may very well be one of the most relatable letters for us to read today. This letter is very somber, it's very heavy, and probably hits closer to home here in America than we would ever dare admit. The church in Sardis had a reputation for what I believe many churches today want. They had a reputation that many Christians want. And they had the reputation of being alive. They had the reputation of being popular and a successful church. And as we will come to find out, is that underneath it all, uh, Sardis was actually just the opposite. The church in Sardis was one that tolerated sin. They abandoned what they remembered and heard. They refused to engage the culture around them and they were a friend of the world and even advocated for it, like Thyatira. It was full of Christians and name only. And Sardis was a dead church living a fake life. So what does Christ say to a church that has succumbed to the pressures of the world and the culture around them? Well, let's see. Read with me in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write... The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, 
but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this ability that we get to come as a church uh, for corporate worship. Uh, I thank you for this opportunity to stand in front of this church and attempt to preach your word to these people. And I know that in my weak words, um, there is no power. So I ask tonight that um, you would come, that you would give us softened hearts, that what we read tonight would penetrate them, and that we could walk away with, with application and truly understand what we're reading in this letter tonight. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the children that are here. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Before we get into these verses, I'm going to actually give a little bit of context for us, because I think this is going to help us as we read through this letter. Um, the church in Sardis was, or just Sardis in general, was actually an extraordinarily wealthy city. It had an abundance of gold and silver. It was actually located 50 miles east of the church in Smyrna, and they actually had a river that supplied them with all of their wealth. The river was very rich in gold, uh, making Sardis a highly sought-after city. They became a center for wool, for the dyeing of fabrics, and um, had a booming little economy. And so actually many historians credit Sardis as being the first city to develop um, the art of dyeing clothing and coin making. Sardis was once one, um, Sardis was the home of the Lydian Empire and its greatest king, King Croesus. And the city at the time that this letter is actually written is Roman and full of pagan idolatry as well as a very wealthy, prominent Jewish community. So there's two things that I want you to remember out of that. Very wealthy Jewish community and a pagan culture. This is where the church in Sardis is surrounded by. Um, Sardis itself is built and fortified on thousand-foot-tall cliffs. It's a very hard city to get into. And the city seemed to be impregnable. Nobody could get into it. 700 years before this letter, this city was actually one of the greatest cities in the world. And today, only ruins are left of this city outside of Sart, Turkey. Now, I want you to look back at verse 1 with me. Keep some of that in mind as we read through this. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, and you have the reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Now, there's a lot to unpack in verse 1. Uh, but however, this is the first thing as we read through this that I want to address. To the angel of the church in Sardis. Uh, this is understood to be the person of authority in this church. Their pastor is who the letter is being written to. Um, their pastor is the one who will receive this letter from Christ. And so I want us to actually look back down at that same verse where it says, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now some of you may be thinking, uh, the seven spirits of God, what is that? What does that even mean? Um, it almost sounds contradictory at first when you first read it. Um, 
However, it's not. And something we need to note here is that the number seven is a special one. Uh, biblically, the number seven is a number of completion, of holiness, of perfection. And so I want you to think about the high priests in the Old Testament that would sprinkle the altar seven times to uh, signify the completion and the perfection of Christ making atonement for sin, right? Sin is a, no I mean, <laughs> seven is a number for perfection. It's for completion. So take that and add it with what we're about to read in Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 2. We're actually going to let Scripture interpret Scripture here because this actually helps us out a lot. So this is how it reads. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from whose roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the counsel, sorry, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So this verse actually provides us with multiple aspects of the Spirit of the Lord. We have wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. So the Spirit of the Lord has seven identified characteristics out of this text. So we have the significance of the number seven uh, being a number of wholeness, completeness, perfection. And then we have the seven identified characteristics of the Spirit of God leaving us to conclude that these characteristics of the Spirit of God are the whole and perfect um, Holy Spirit. So this is the Holy Spirit. This is just another way to say that. But what does Christ say? He says, these are the words of him who has the seven spirits of the Lord. So that's a present tense. Christ has the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Christ is the one who holds them. And so the one speaking to the church is actually the one who literally possesses the Holy Spirit. And this is what Christ is telling the pastor in the Sardinian church. The church is uh, that Christ is reminding the pastor that the church is under his supremacy and under his authority. That Christ is the sovereign ruler, that he is in control. And so then we go on and we see the seven stars, right? So we're like, okay, we get that. What about the seven stars? What do these mean? Look back to chapter 1, and Christ actually tells us what these represent. The seven stars are the seven angels, or the, the seven pastors of these churches. And Christ is telling him that he is the one who has the seven ministers of the seven churches. So Christ is telling them that he not only possesses the fullness of the Holy Spirit, but that he, ha he also possesses the pastors of the seven churches. Christ is again putting on display his sovereignty and his authority... And Christ is showing them that he is the one who sends the Holy Spirit to the churches and that he is the one who sovereignly rules through faithful pastors. He actually identifies himself in this way because this is exactly what is missing among the church in Sardis. The Spirit of the Lord and a pastor who is faithful. And every single letter Christ actually identifies himself in this series. And interestingly enough, he identifies himself as the very specific need of every single church. So this church is without the Holy Spirit and without a faithful pastor. And the church of Sardis is being led by those who are not godly and void of the Holy Spirit. And because of this, the church is made up of mostly the unregenerate and unbelievers with only a few who are left that are still faithful. Now continue reading with me in verse 1 here. He says, I know your works and you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I know your works is a reminder to the readers of the all-knowing God, that Christ sees all, that he knows all, that Christ will not be fooled, 
that Christ is omniscient. And Christ tells them, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And here is Christ's rebuke to the church in Sardis, that they are dead. Now, if you're like me, and you take things a little too seriously sometimes, this passage gets a little weird for a moment. Uh, don't get me wrong. Uh, we need to take the Bible seriously, but we must also know how to spot literary devices. So Christ is using a hyperbole here. Um, as you will recall, a hyperbole is a literary device that exaggerates to make a point or draws emphasis to something. And so here Christ is actually drawing emphasis to the overall spiritual state of this church in Sardis. So you're like, okay, um, I get that. But how do we know that Christ isn't saying that, that Sardis is dead, dead, right? Like we read in Ephesians, like dead in their, sin, in their trespasses and sins dead. Well, let's look back at what he says um, after he tells them that they're a dead church. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So context is king here. Um, and unless we're going to go down the road that Christ is actually contradicting himself, which he isn't, then Sardis can't be Ephesians dead. So, because if they're, if they're dead, dead, dead in, dead in trespasses and sins dead, then we know that Sardis can't um, respond in this way that Christ has commanded him. So Christ is using hyper, uh, hyperbolic language here. Now let's back up for just one second. Christ knows that they were known for being alive. So how does a church that looks alive on the outside become dead on the inside? How does that even happen? Imagine a church that does a ton of social work, a church that is packed full on Sundays, a church with a booming youth ministry known for its involvement in the community, a church that gets along with everyone, a church that would never say anything that would ever be offensive. And this is how I imagine the church of Sardis was. Their works gained human attention and praise, but not divine. The culture looked at Sardis with approval. The church had a friendliness with, that, with the culture and with the world. And the church became lethargic about the radical demands of their faith. The church was compromising and succumbing to the pressures of the culture around them. And they were unfaithful to fulfill their calling. They were complacent. And Sardis softened their condemnation of idolatry and ungodliness. Sardis had to have watered down the gospel to not offend the culture. And I have to ask, does this sound familiar to anyone? I mean, look at the climate of the church here in America. Think about the climate. Every day, another church is compromising on truth. And every day, another church is sacrificing truth on the altar of tolerance and acceptance. What's the biggest problem that the American church is facing right now? The sexual revolution, as Al Mohler calls it. So many churches are compromising truth. So many churches are praising LGBTQ culture, even letting them preach in the pulpit, and these churches will not condemn sin. They don't preach the gospel, they don't preach on sin, they don't preach the wrath of God for their sin, and they praise sin in the streets and celebrate it openly. And the church will stand up and fight for social justice here in America and will sit right back down for biblical authority. They give worldly advice with a religious bent. They slap a secular hippie Jesus on it, and the culture looks at them and claps their hands in acceptance. So when we start looking at the climate of the church in America, and we think back to the climate of the church in Sardis, 
it dawns on you that things haven't really changed all that much. So we ask, how does this affect us, though? I don't think Rev has a problem with major waves of the cultural revolution that we're in. But I would say that all of us are still influenced by the culture around us. The church in Sardis probably stuck out their hands and they got them smacked. And once they got their hands smacked enough, they probably never stuck it out again. And if they did, they did just the bare minimum to appease their conscience while still showing the world that they had shame for the truth of God. So we must ask ourselves then, do I stick my hand out at all anymore? Do we engage our culture? Do I do the bare minimum? And we know that this is, a, this is a problem for us in our friend group, at work, with our families. I, ha I actually have a small example that I was thinking of. I actually debated putting this in here because it's, it's uh, kind of harsh. But I have an example. So everybody, know, everybody here knows I work for Kenworth, right? It's mostly dominated. Uh, it's a male work environment. And uh, they say actually some of the most obscene things you could possibly imagine. Matt and Todd, uh, working with some of those guys, they know what I'm talking about, because I probably, I guarantee you they hear it as well. Um, imagine being in an environment that is openly uh, hostile to the Christian worldview, and when things come up, like, say, pornography, right, and you publicly condemn pornography as being sinful, for being uh, a sin of lust, and adultery at heart, the faces you get and the pushback you get in that environment will blow your mind. And so when you look at that, are you going to do that again? That's a question. Will you still say the same thing, or are you going to back off because you're scared of seeing that pushback again? Now, you can take that example and apply it to your all, all of your own different lives. We all have different jobs. We all have different families and different contexts, right? We can still apply that. Do you stand up for God's truth in your friend group, in your families, at work, or are you scared to do it? Do you stand for biblical authority? Do you stand for a biblical morality? Uh, the exclusivity of Christ? And I just lost my spot. Let me find this. Give me one second. Okay. Uh, yeah, the exclusivity of Christ. Um, that hell is a real place. Whatever it may be, do you back off? Do you show that you have shame for God's truth, or do you stand firm and continue to affirm the truths in the scriptures? The Sardian church became secularized. They paid token acknowledgments to the pagan gods and of that culture. Their sin blinded them, and Sardis was actually the only church out of the seven that is so lethargic in fulfilling their Christian calling that they are on the verge of actual spiritual death. They didn't preach the gospel. They didn't engage the culture with the gospel. And if the Sardinian Christians actually maintained a Christian profile, they would have faced heavy persecution for it. Not only by pagans, but by the, the huge Jewish community that is there. They have a culture that should look at these Christians and think to themselves, you don't worship like us, you don't believe like us, you don't dress like us, you don't act like us, and you tell us our gods aren't real, and that Jesus Christ is the true Messiah that we're waiting on. Look at the missionary journeys of Paul. Paul confronted the culture, Paul taught in the Jewish synagogues, and Paul preached to the unconverted Jews and Gentiles, but what did Paul receive for it? He was beaten repeatedly, nearly stoned to death, 
kicked out, shipwrecked, and the list goes on. This is what happens. But the church in, in Sardis faced no persecution whatsoever because the world around them approved. The world said that they were alive and that the Sardian church was actually filled with the unbelieving, unregenerate culture around them. Quite frankly, Sardis was an example, a perfect example, of inoffensive Christianity. And so 30 years after this church was established, they are so numb in their complacency with sin that they probably didn't even recognize it. And if they did, they feared ruining their reputation and the culture. The reputation of being tolerant. The reputation that they had for being alive. The reputation for being cool or accepting. So here's a takeaway for us. Ruin your reputation if it means confessing Christ. Ruin your reputation if it means to condemn sin. Ruin your reputation by turning away from worldliness. Family, ruin your reputation if it means being holy. Some of, you, some of you may be thinking, David, why should I risk my job? Why should I risk losing the only friends that I have left? Why should I risk not talking to my family or just them completely separating from me? And that's because Christ is worthy. If you are known for being passive, if you are trying so hard to be the cool Christian, the I'm not your grandmother's church Christian, because I've been there, I've done that. If the world does not know you as a Christian, ruin your reputation because Christ is worthy. And now before we go into verse 2, I actually have a little bit of extra context for us in the history um, that I think is actually really significant for the church of Sardis. Um, the greatest king of Sardis was actually King Croesus of the Lydian Empire. And King Croesus actually engaged in war with the king of Persia, King Cyrus II. Uh, they, actually, they actually left their fortified city in Sardis, and they fought the Persians. And long story short, they got their butts handed to them. Uh, so they actually left, and they retreated back into their fortified city. And what this did is this left the Persian army searching for military tactics on how they can get back into Sardis. The Persian king actually bribed his soldiers, uh, telling them that if, if you can find a way to scale this mountain and get into this city, I will pay you a very great wealthy amount. Um, so Persian soldiers actually spied out on the city, trying to find a way to get into it. And one particular night, a Lydian soldier was supposed to be on guard. He was supposed to be keeping watch, but he started falling asleep. And as he nodded off, his helmet fell from the top of the fortress. And the Persian soldiers saw the helmet shine as it fell all the way down. And not knowing that he was being watched, this Lydian soldier scaled down the mountain through a fault in the rock. And it was because of this Lydian soldier falling asleep, dropping his helmet, and scaling down this rock that um, the city of Sardis fell to the Persian king, Cyrus in 547 BC. So the citizens of Sardis remember this. They would remember this forever. They lost their entire city. They passed this down from generation to generation. And I want you to notice the command that Christ gives them. And so look at verse 2 with me. Christ says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So this command to wake up will actually strike a chord with the church of Sardis. Uh, telling someone to wake up has a fairly universal meaning. I mean, you don't really have to explain it that much. You know what I mean? People, people understand what you mean if you tell them, wake up. 
Um, but I can imagine that the church in Sardis uh, would be alarmed and that this would actually remind them of that soldier that dropped his helmet and went down to get it in the fact that they lost the entire city because he fell asleep. He says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. And this is exactly what he means. Um, I'm about to lose my spot again because I apparently don't know how to use this iPad. Sorry, y'all. Okay. Um, okay. So he says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. And this is exactly what he means. For all of those in the church of Sardis, uh, he wants them to regain their former fervor that they had. This church that was started and started pure, where did that go? He's telling them to go back to their formal spiritual commitment before it's too late. And when we look at verse 2, he says, For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Christ is essentially saying, All of those things that you are known for being alive for are not sufficient. They do not please me, they are, they are not satisfactory, and they're hollow. They're done half-heartedly at best, and they're done borderline blasphemy at most, because you carry on going through the motions to gain acceptance from the world, knowing that they're hollow. Because, you, because all of these works are done to gain acceptance from the world, and not to earn uh, praise from the Lord or to give him glory. And before the culture around you, um, he's telling them, before the culture around you, you refuse to acknowledge me and to bring me glory with what you do, and I see right through your works. So continuing on to verse 3, he says, Remember, then, what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. So Christ tells them to remember. Remember what you have received and heard. He's telling them to remember what was preached to you. Remember that I became flesh, that I walked among you and lived a sinless life. Christ is saying, remember that I came to live the life that you could not live. Remember that I died in your place for your sin, taking on the wrath of God for what you've done. And remember that I've redeemed you with my blood. That you can only stand guiltless before the Father by faith and repentance in me alone. He's telling them to remember the life that they were called to. Remember that you are called to be fighting for your sin. Fighting against your sin, sorry. Remember that you were called to go and proclaim the gospel to everyone around you. To go evangelize the nations. James 4.4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He's calling all this back to them. Remember. Sardis knew the gospel. They, knew the, they had right doctrine. They knew theology. And they knew the radical demands of their faith. They knew that they had a duty to go and evangelize everyone around them. And they just refused to. They were complacent. They were corrupted with sin. And they became secular. But here Christ is calling them back to their former love. He's calling them back to what they know but do not practice. And he tells them, keep it. He's telling them to keep what they've just remembered, what he's reminding them of. Keep it. He's calling them to change, for their works to be done in a manner that is pleasing to Christ, and he's calling them to align what they know with what they do. 
And he tells them, repent. Christ commands them to repent. For them to acknowledge their sin against Christ. For them to change their actions and live in a manner that is worthy of their calling. For them to have a change of mind and a change of heart. And that their actions would actually stem out from those changes. But what if they don't? What if they say the same? Look at verse 3. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And I want to clarify here that this is not the final coming that will conclude history. But this is Christ coming in judgment to judge Sardis for their sin and complacency. But another piece of history here is that uh, not only was Sardis taken by Cyrus II, but also by Antiochus III. And the other reason this matters is that I want to note that both times Sardis was taken over in a city that was supposed to be impregnable, it happened under the darkness of night. And this is a metaphor that will stick with them. So as they read before and as they read now, this comes back up to them. They remember. We didn't lose the city once, but we lost it twice. Sardis will be taken over. Um, Sardis was taken over when they least expected it, when they were asleep, when they were comfortable, and when they believed nothing was going on. And so they remember that, and this is when Christ will come. Unless they turn back, repent, and continue to be an effective cause in their culture to preach the gospel of Christ. So I want to actually kind of wrap this up for a second. We're not done yet. I know you're happy if I would have been, but uh, we're actually going to sum up what we just read. So um, Christ actually sends a message to the church in Sardis, starting from the first verse up to where we ended right now. Christ sends a message to the church in Sardis. He identifies himself with authority as the one with the fullness of the Spirit of God and the one who has the pastors of the seven churches showing his supremacy and sovereign rule to these people. And Christ rebukes the church in Sardis. He tells them that he knows their works and he knows that they are known for being alive and he actually tells them that they're a dead church. That he can see their worldliness, that he can see their sin, that he knows that all their actions are hollow. He actually commands them to remember what they have received and heard and to remember what Christ has done for them. That the life that they were called to because of their faith. And he tells them, keep it and repent. And if they don't, Christ will come in judgment to strike down Sardis. And the reason why I wanted to sum that up is because when we come to verse 4, we actually have a, a change in tone. The topic changes. Read with me. It says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So after Christ has actually just condemned and rebuked them, he shifts to the small remnant of the faithful believers in Sardis. And though the majority of the church in Sardis was dead, the few who remained faithful, this is who he's talking to. The ones who have been faithful are the ones who have not soiled their garments. And now this phrase actually carries a lot of weight for them back then. Um, it was a common practice, even among pagan religions, to not allow people to enter the temple if their clothes were not clean. They would actually turn them away. They wouldn't let them worship. So the theme of white garments uh, here is a theme that you will see all throughout the book of Revelation. And what these represent is the purity of the church and the purity of their works. So it's actually easy to see the contrast of those who have soiled their garments and those who walk in white with Christ. Walking in white with Christ, meaning that they are without stains and without blemishes. 
Christ says that those who walk with him are worthy. And so that's important. This worthy, what does this mean? What are they talking about when they said that, that what is, what is, man, I can't even think. Um, what is Christ saying when he tells them, these are the people who are worthy? Does he mean that this small remnant of Christians in this church have actually lived um, in such a way that they have earned their worthiness before Christ? No. They're worthy because their worthiness is found in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ alone. Okay, Solus Christus. And the last time I was actually up here preaching, I preached on the doctrine of Solus Christus. Explaining the fact that we are justified uh, before the Father because of the active and passive obedience of Christ. And we talked about Martin Luther calling the righteousness of Christ the alien righteousness. And it is this alien righteousness that makes us worthy. Those in white are worthy. And these are the faithful ones. These are the ones filled with the spirit that is absent in the church and Sardis. So continuing on to verse 5. Christ goes on to say, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So the one who conquers will be clothed in white. Will be. Notice that. That's a fact. This is a promise made by Christ himself. The one who conquers are those who are his. And the one who, con the one who conquers are those who have an alien righteousness of Christ. They conquer because his righteousness has became their worthiness. And that is why Christ will not blot their name out of the book of life. Not because it's possible for them to lose their name, but because of their faith in the work of Christ, they will not lose their justification. They will not lose Christ's righteousness. They will continue to persevere, even in a pagan and idolatrous culture, until the end, because Christ, the good shepherd, does not lose his sheep. Now look at the last sentence in that verse. It says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And does that sound familiar to anyone as a theme? Well, I hope it does. Um, Matthew 10, 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my father who is in heaven. So the conquerors are those who are fulfilling the radical demands of their faith. They have the spirit. They have the spirit working in them as they engage the culture, and their lives reflect it. They are willing to confess their allegiance to Christ in the preaching of the gospel. And they will, they will claim Christ before other men, and because of this, so Christ will claim them before his Father. These are the people of God. Those whose names are written in the book of life before the foundations of the world, who believe by faith in Christ... And who is held tightly by the good shepherd who doesn't lose sheep. And so for the small remnant of believers in Sardis, this section is actually very joyous for them. So lastly, lastly we come to verse 6. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Or another way to say that is, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to Sardis. For all of us in this room tonight, we have much that we can take away from this letter. Um, this is the effect of a church that has become worldly. Um, a church that was started pure, who had good doctrine, who had good theology, and who had faithful preachers and teachers. And over the course of 30 years, they fell into complacency and tolerance of sin. They were plagued, sorry, 
Um, they weren't plagued with false teachers, and they weren't plagued with, part, with uh, persecution. Um, Pergamum and Thyatira are, are two of those that did, and they didn't even have this condemnation brought on them. Rather, they had decided to compromise in the culture because they enjoyed being comfortable in a world around them. They succumbed to the pressure of the culture, and before they knew it, they looked just like the world. So this is a harsh warning for us that we need to heed. Does this not cause us to check ourselves, put ourselves back into the text? Ask yourselves, have we become worldly? Do you merely look alive and religious while in all reality you're barely hanging on for a thread? Do you have the drive that you once had to tell everyone you know about the gospel? Do you have the zeal and the desire to give a faithful witness to Christ, regardless of what the world may say or do? Do you see yourself or your life reflecting the church of Sardis? Is there anything that we see that we need to repent of? Do you need, do you have a need to fear the Lord's wrath and displeasure? Brothers and sisters, by God's grace, may we stay awake and keep from falling asleep like Sardis did. May we not be like Sardis and compromise with the culture. May we not sacrifice God's truth on the altars of tolerance and acceptance. And may we not go with the flow of culture like everyone else. May we be faithful witnesses to Christ and live lives in accordance with our calling. May we have enough courage to offend the culture if need be. But how are we going to prevent this from happening here at Revolution? This is where this really becomes applicable. Look back at verse 3. What does Christ tell them? Remember what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. Remember the atoning death of Christ who came to save us. Remember that you were bought with a price. Remember that you are called to evangelize a dying world around you, whether that's in your family, whether that's at work, or whether that's with your friends. And when you fall back into sin, hold faith. <laughs> hold fast to the faith and repent. Because faith and repentance is the entire life of the Christian. So why should we confront the culture and risk losing jobs, friends, or family? Look back to verse 5. Because Christ is faithful to confess our name before the Father to the ones who confess Christ. Well, Christ tells us, well done, good and faithful servant. Ruin your reputation because Christ is worthy. Let's pray.